You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go I will go, and where you lodge I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May Yahweh do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when Yahweh has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest.
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 715 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, September 17th, 2023, and that was the first chapter of the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, which is just a beautiful, beautiful book. It's a beautiful story, and it is a breath of fresh air after the book of Judges. The book of Judges is tough stuff. It's like The Walking Dead or Game of Thrones or (laughs) Hell on Wheels. You know, there are a lot of shows that I've watched that at a certain point I said, all right, you know what? I I just can't watch this anymore. They were critically acclaimed and lots of people were talking about them when they were at their peak of popularity, when they were first coming out. And, you know, there were still, still new episodes that were playing, you know, that the show's They had their own gravitational pull. That's how I'll explain it. They were much talked about, and so I checked them out, right? Breaking Bad, very similar. It was what everybody was talking about, and I thought, okay, well, I'll watch a little bit, right? When the kids aren't around, I'll watch a little bit while I work or what have you. And at a certain point with each of those shows, as well-made as they were, as good as the writing was and the acting and... As impressive as the storytelling was, there was just a sense of feeling sanded down, right? Feeling sandblasted because so much of what was in those shows, so much of what is in those shows is so abrasive. It's just very hard to stick with that tough stuff for a long time or for very long at all and come away with happiness or optimism or joy or hope for the future. You get the same kind of a feel when you read the book of Judges. You you just do. It's like, wow, this is gross and awful. And people can be just terrible, right? What is wrong with people? And then also, too, to realize no similar excuse can be made for Christians to not read or not factor in The book of Judges, as very often you'll hear when it comes to the grittier details, not even just of TV shows or movies that are gritty, but real life events. There are hard things that happen in life that you'll find a lot of mainstream evangelical Christianity in America for years has just shied away from. There was a certain bend towards positive, encouraging, I would attribute a lot of this to K-Love, the radio station, positive, encouraging K-Love, but also behind K-Love, the Christian music industry. And behind the Christian music industry and preceding the Christian music industry, the chain of Christian bookstores or several chains of Christian bookstores, Lifeway, for instance, that marketed their wares, their home decor and Bible study resources and devotional guides and movies and all the rest to primarily women. And what's curious about that is those places, those outlets, the Christian bookstores and the Christian music industry marketing a lot of their material towards women, that is itself, it would seem from my studying of the history of Christianity in America, that itself is downstream of the 
effects of the Industrial Revolution on the family in the West. In America, the effect has been that men were pulled away from the life of farming and keeping a a store or a shop or their own trade in the home, pulled away from that life and pulled into working in factories, working in the big cities, working around primarily other men all day, every day for long hours and relatively low pay in the majority of cases and living in unsuitable housing. And round about a century ago in the U.S., the role of the mother, you might say a century to a century and a half ago, the role of the mother shifted from being primarily working alongside her husband, but then in a Christian context, being submissive to her own husband and regarding her husband as her head, taking care of the children, taking care of the business alongside her husband, it shifted to now, if there was still a business, she was the one running it while her husband was working at the factory, right? It became a side hustle of sorts for the family or it just closed down. And if there was a farm, well, she was still keeping it up, perhaps, possibly, and instructing the children. So if you didn't have a community school to send children to, it was the mom at home with the children, providing the moral instruction, teaching them to read, teaching them to write, teaching them the Bible as a vehicle for teaching them to read and write, but then also taking them to church. And if there was catechizing going on, it was the mom who was providing that catechizing. And insofar as increasingly it was the mother who was the moral and spiritual guardian of the home because the father was pulled out of the home and into the factories or onto the battlefields with major industrial wars like World War I and World War II, you had increasingly the mother and the wife, the woman, more to the point, being seen as the spiritual guardian, the moral guardian, the moral conscience of not just the home, but also as an extension of being such in the home, also the neighborhood, the community, the church. And so then, of course, increasingly you had the churches catering more to what do the women want to talk about? What do the women want to read and study? What are their questions? And that's what we're going to talk about. That's what is going to be produced in the way of writing and studies and devotionals. And then subsequently, when there was the possibility of having music industries like the Christian music industry, what kind of music was going to be produced? What kind of music is produced primarily is in the Christian scene targeted towards one, the wives and mothers, the women. And then for two, the youth, right? Because the wives and the mothers want their children, they want the youth to have good, clean music that's going to have a good moral influence, a good spiritual influence on their children. And this isn't all or nothing, don't get me wrong. But primarily, it's the wives and the mothers who have been seen as being the guardians over these things. And so then also, what's put out caters to their tastes or their sensibilities, And it wasn't always so. In fact, pre-industrial revolution, it wasn't seen as the domain of women to make those judgment calls themselves. They were 
certainly, of course, of course, possessing opinions and having judgment, the best women looking at the Proverbs 31 woman, for instance, and saying, that's who I want to be. But then what did that mean? That meant that they were advising their husband who was right alongside them and they were giving input to their husband, but their husband would make the final call. He would make the final determination and he would be the spokesperson for the family. The book of Ruth is interesting in part because it comes right after the book of Judges and has a very different tempo, a very different aesthetic, so to speak, but a very different sentiment generally. It's a much kinder, gentler book to the reader. But also, too, it's a bit of a story about what happens when the men are gone, when the men are not there. Now, in the case of Naomi, for instance, her husband dies. You know, that's a pretty good excuse, if you will, a pretty good reason to not be there that you died, right? You know, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say he probably didn't mean to die. He probably didn't intend for that. That was not what he was going for, to die and leave his wife to just fend for herself. But he did, right? He died. And so now she's without a husband. But she's got these two sons and... In turn, they marry these two Moabite women, and then they die. So now you have a woman who did have a husband, and she had two sons. And typically, if the husband of a woman died, her sons would become the spokespeople. They would become the spokesman for the family. Typically, the older son would become the spokesman, but then both and, right? Both of these sons could represent their mother in any kind of a dispute and provide a safety against would-be predators. And here I mean would-be predators of the human variety. We get the wrong idea when we think that men serving that role, the husband being the spokesperson for the family or adult sons being spokespeople, spokesmen for their widowed mother is somehow repressive or condescending or demeaning. No, no. That's giving honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, just like husbands are told to do in the New Testament. That's not an Old Testament thing. That's not antiquated. It's not outdated. The woman is still the weaker vessel, and we are still supposed to give honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. But what happens when there is no spokesperson for the Naomi character and now her daughters-in-law? She has two, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. This book is about Ruth, and Ruth is the one to watch for. But this is three women, right? One older woman who life has not been kind to, and she, to some extent, is walking a fine line in blaming God, or at least saying this is God's doing. God has allowed this to happen, or he's ordained for this to happen. And maybe she's a little bit of a Job character, Naomi. Call me Mara. She sounds a lot like Job. But this is an older woman and two younger women, and then it's an older woman and a younger woman, because Orba does go back to her people and back to her gods, and she'll find a new husband and get remarried, and life will go on for her. But Ruth is going to go with Naomi in large part, I believe, because otherwise Naomi has nobody, right? She's lost everybody. She has nobody to help her. She has nobody to make sure that she is taken care of. 
Ruth is exemplary along the lines of what Paul writes when he gives instructions for caring for widows in the New Testament. If you'll recall, and I've talked about this before, and I think it's just a goldmine with implications for the modern welfare state and for so much of what passes for charity, which may not be charitable, actually, it might be disobedient when these are Christian organizations, Christian institutions, it may not be actually so charitable. It may be selfish ambition and vain conceit of the kind that the Pharisees were known for. Look at me giving. I'm going to announce my giving with trumpets and tambourines because I want you to partner with me in giving. But then even if you don't, I at least get to be seen for being so generous. But wait a second. Paul says, don't, (laughs) don't. When it's a younger widow, the younger widow should get remarried. And actually, interestingly, that's what Ruth does. She does get remarried. Not to give anything away, if you haven't read the book of Ruth yet, and you're not familiar, she does get remarried. She is a younger widow, and it's proper, it's good, it's right, it's a happy thing that she gets remarried to a certain Boaz, spoiler alert. But Naomi is an older widow, and Naomi, it would seem, is probably of the kind, of the type that Paul gives instructions for taking care of, the church taking care of, because she's a true widow. She's probably over 60, just saying. She's at least past maternal age. She's past childbearing years. She's old enough to have had adult sons who passed on after 10 years of living with wives. So they were at least, I would guess, 30 or 40 years old, her sons, and then they passed away. But these are their wives who are left, and their wives may be considerably younger. But that doesn't mean that Naomi is so young. She's probably, I would just guess, 50s or 60s in age, probably somewhere in there. If her sons, if they were in their 30s or 40s, she's probably in her 50s or 60s. And when you think forward to the New Testament, when Paul talks about true widows, those who are older than 60 are the only ones who should be enrolled for the church to provide for. And that's only if they have good character, they've demonstrated good character, they serve the church, they do good works, they're not busybodies, they're not going around from house to house, stirring up trouble, injecting themselves into other people's business, they mind their own business, they should work. But then if they can't work and there's nobody to provide for them, there's no extended family, they have nobody, well then, they should be taken care of by the church. But then if they do have extended family, their extended family has an opportunity to do the right thing, just like Ruth. Ruth does the right thing. She steps up and, oh, by the way, in case we just glided right over it, she's a Moabitess, which is to say she's of the people of Moab who have not exactly been on the friendliest of terms with Israel. So these are not... God-fearing, Yahweh-worshiping people, the Moabites. And nevertheless, right, she does the right thing. She's kind of a precursor to the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells the parable about. She is doing her duty to Naomi in a way that is exemplary. In fact, it's exactly right. She does exactly the right thing, the virtuous thing, and she makes this fantastic and inspiring pledge Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. 
That's quite a commitment, particularly when some of the treatment of Ruth may be pretty ugly just on the fact that she is a Moabite and they're going to go and live among Israelites. Regardless of what she's doing, if she is doing the right thing and should be commended for it, she's going to be treated in an ugly way. She's going to be excluded by a lot of people just based on her ethnicity, based on where she comes from, who she hails from. There's so much here. There is so, so much here, but it actually is very consistent with what we've been talking about with regards to the widows and the care for widows. A young widow, Paul says, should not be enrolled because what? She'll get into trouble. She'll become a busybody. She'll start injecting herself into other people's business. And that is to say, she'll start gossiping. She'll go from house to house, eating other people's food. Think Yenta in The Fiddler on the Roof. She's going to go around being a busybody, getting into trouble, stirring up trouble, stirring up division between people because she gets bored. But not Ruth, right? Ruth doesn't do that. Ruth is trying to take care of her widow mother-in-law. And she does, right? She does, and she goes. And then there's this exchange back and forth between Naomi and the women. And this is interesting because note, verses 19 through 22, the women of Bethlehem are the ones who are talking with Naomi. But then they're talking about her in the third person. Is this Naomi? And Naomi replies directly, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So the whole town turns out, but it's the women who are talking about Naomi, even though Naomi is right there. And this happens, and women do this. Men do this too, but women do this. Let's talk about the women for a moment. Women can do this where they're talking about a woman right in front of her so as to let her know she is not part of the in-group. It's curious, and I don't think accidental, that this opens with them talking about her in front of her with the whole town assembled. And she is not having it. She replies with a corrective. Don't call me that. Whoa. Okay, fine. That's fine. Mara, but there's no reply, right? There's no reply here. And this is just what it is, right? This is what it's going to be. There's going to be a little bit of exclusion based on the fact that Naomi and her husband and her sons went off and they left. And yes, now they're come back, but this plays out similarly, actually also in the New Testament, by the way, the whole reason why there were deacons in the first place is because there was a dispute between the Hellenistic Jews and the Jews who had stuck around and they hadn't gone anywhere as to the care for widows. So there were widows of the type who had never left Judea. They had never left Palestine. They had never left Israel. They had stuck around and they'd retained their distinct Jewishness. And then there were the Jews who had gone abroad. They had gone to live in Rome, for instance. And then there was an edict that said, All of the Jews were to be kicked out of Rome. If there were slaves and servants and merchants and traders, they were to be kicked out. So they come back, some of them. They come back to Jerusalem, but now they're Romanized. 
And now they have some Hellenistic ideas. They have some Greek ideas that they've mixed in with their Jewishness. And even though they're Jews, they're all Jews here. The ones who left and came back are, it's claimed, being discriminated against by those who are administering the care for widows in the New Testament church. There's a partiality. That's the whole reason why there were deacons in the very first place is because those who had gone away and come back, maybe after generations, maybe years, maybe decades, those who had come back were being held at arm's length, very similarly to how Gentile believers were initially ostracized. But come back to the book of Ruth here and recognize that this Naomi, she's probably being chattered about out of earshot, right? They do it in front of her and then she confronts them and then everybody probably disperses and she's going to know that they're continuing to talk about her. And the kinds of things that they will say about her are probably going to be similar kinds of things to what might have been said concerning me, for instance, when I moved back to Eastern Montana back in 2012. By some people, not all people, but some people, there was probably some chatter because we moved away when I was 10 and here I am, I'm back and I'm trying to get a start and I moved my family out and there's a little bit of, oh, wow, is this Byron's son? Oh, is this Ernest Mullet's grandson? Is this Merle's nephew? Is this Brent's cousin? And the answer to all of the above is yes, of course, but then when you're talking about me in front of me, you're kind of doing the same thing. You're kind of keeping me at arm's length and suggesting that I'm really not going to be fully a part of whatever you guys have going on that's been uninterrupted by my moving away when I was young and moving back now. And then when I'm not around you, you're probably going to continue to talk about me ever more freely to criticize or to speculate. Ah, yeah, wasn't so great out there, right? The grass wasn't really so much greener on the other side, was it? Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's what they get, right? We knew they shouldn't have gone off in the first place. There might even be a little bit of bitterness because if there was a famine and the famine led to Naomi's husband and her and their two sons leaving, there may have been some bitterness back home because, well, hey, wait a second. We really could have used your help here. Now, of course, in the moment, nobody probably said anything, right? Nobody said anything because it was like, well, yeah, good. You know, a couple, a couple less mouths to feed. But that's not how people will spin it when there's a return and they want an excuse to be exclusionary. They'll say, you weren't here to help. You didn't really get us through that. You abandoned us. You left. You traitor. You probably got some crazy ideas out there. Now you're coming back and bringing those crazy ideas because it wasn't so great out there either. And now you're just doing the same thing. You think the grass is greener on this side of the fence again. So you're back again. We'll just keep you at arm's length for good. And we want you to know that. But these are the kinds of things that people can do and the kinds of ways people can relate when they're trying to build up an excuse for themselves and one another to be of zero help, no help at all. These are the kinds of ways people will relate if they want to build up a case in their own minds and in the minds of their fellows for being malicious and picking on someone. Ruth is a better person. She is a better person. She has better character than the people of this place who don't offer help. There's no indication, zero indication at all that they are offering help, that they're welcoming 
Naomi and Ruth in. No indication whatsoever. I mean, it is harvest season, right? They're busy, right? They're very busy with the barley harvest. So now, what? Right? Oh, that's interesting. And everybody just goes back home and continues chattering about the return of Naomi and what happened to her husband and what happened to her sons. They go back home and they're on with their business. They look only to their own interests, even when they help each other, because in their calculation, they're helping others who are going to help them right back in perpetuity. How do they know that? Because that's the way it's been. We stuck around. We stayed here. We circled the wagons. We helped each other get through it. And we're going to continue on helping each other. But then Naomi has Ruth. And that's pretty great. And as we're going to find out, as we continue reading in the book of Ruth, they are not going to be forgotten. God has not forgotten. This is not unnoticed. And yet, what's interesting about the book of Ruth And you'll notice this as we continue on. There is little to no intervention directly, explicitly of God in this situation. God is talked about. He's referenced. But this is people, right? This is kind of a stand back and let's just watch what happens with the people as the people do what they do. And yes, they may do what they do in relation to one another and they may do what they do in relation to God. But... This is a human story, and we should care about it because people matter to God, and people are supposed to matter to us. The second command, which is like the first, is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Read this book, and you will understand better how to do that. Switching gears, though, let's talk about a different part of the ancient world. Let's talk about ancient Greece, and more specifically, let's talk about an entry at Britannica.com for the Ecclesia. This is filed under History and Society, under the category of Law, Crime, and Punishment, which is a subcategory of Politics, Law, and Government. The Ecclesia was the Ancient Greek Assembly. There you go. There's the very, very short version, but there's more to be said. There's more that can be said, so we will say more. The Ecclesia literally meant the gathering of those summoned. In ancient Greece, it was the assembly of citizens in a city-state. Its roots lay in the Homeric Agora, the meeting of the people. The Athenian ecclesia, for which exists the most detailed record, was already functioning in Draco's day. Draco is, by the way, where we get the adjective draconian. He was very harsh. He was very, very strict. Everything was the death penalty with that guy. He was not one with a sense of humor for breaking the law. Draco's day, circa 621 BC, that's when the Ecclesia was already up and running. In the course of Solon's codification of the law, circa 594 BC, the Ecclesia became coterminous with the body of male citizens 18 years of age or over and had final control over policy, including the right to hear appeals in the Heliaea public court, take part in the election of archons, chief magistrates, so think judges, and confer special privileges on individuals. In the Athens of the 5th and 4th centuries BC, the Prytaneus, a committee of the Boule Council, summoned the Ecclesia both for regular meetings held four times in each 10th of the year and for special sessions. Aside from confirmations of magistrates, consideration of ways and means, and similar fixed procedures, the agenda was fixed by the 
Pritoneus. Since motions had to originate in the boule, the ecclesia could not initiate new business. After discussion open to all members, a vote was taken, usually by show of hands, a simple majority determining the result in most cases. Assemblies of this sort existed in most Greek city-states continuing to function throughout the Hellenistic and Roman periods, though under the Roman Empire, their powers gradually atrophied. And why is that, right? It's worth noting that the reason for the powers of the ecclesia waning under the Romans is because the Romans superimposed their own government over the Greek city-states. And so, sure, yeah, the ecclesia can discuss what they discuss, but at the end of the day, what's going to be the law will be what Rome says the law is going to be. You guys can discuss and determine certain matters as long as your determinations don't conflict with or contradict what it is that Rome has said is going to be the way it goes. And a very similar sort of a thing happened, by the way, in Judea. What happens in the gospel accounts when Jesus is tried by the Sanhedrin is they can make their determination. They can discuss it. They can deliberate. They can argue about it. They can make whatever accusations. They can convict after a fashion. They can say, we find him guilty of this or that thing, blasphemy, for instance. He claims to be God, even though he's just a man. They said he deserves death for blasphemy. He deserves death for making us mad, really, actually just embarrassing us because he contradicted us. He made us look like fools in front of the people, and we hate that. Man, that doesn't deserve the death penalty. What does? Embarrassing us? Humiliating us? Definitely, he definitely deserves to die, but then they didn't have the power to actually put a man to death. Why? Because they were under the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had conquered Judea, and the Roman Empire ruled Judea. And very similarly, in Greece, that superimposition of Roman rule allowed for some deliberation, discussion, local representation. You could deliberate, and you could come to a consensus, and you could then take, very similar to how the Jews did in the Gospel accounts with regards to Jesus, You could take your appeals to the local Roman official, whoever was representative of Roman rule locally. You could say, hey, this is what we want. We want this man to be put to death. And so that's what they do, right? That's what they do in the gospel accounts. And that's what the ecclesia could do. They could deliberate, they could discuss. But then all the while, it has to be in everybody's mind that all the decisions that we come to are non-binding We have to get them approved by the Roman government. But I want to point out that here, prior to the superimposition of Roman rule, this is the body of male citizens 18 years of age or over. 18, as we've talked in recent episodes, is a very common age of majority. There is a wide range, everything from 13 all the way up to 30 at most under the Romans, 30 was at one point the age of majority. You couldn't, at 29, enter into a legal agreement, a formal agreement, without the permission of your curatores. But 18, that was an age of majority here in the context of participating in the ecclesia. You had to be a citizen, and you had to be a male. And today, we look back and we say, wow, those people, right? What sexists, right? Didn't they know that women had 
great ideas? Didn't they know that there were plenty of wise, discerning women with good judgment who might have something to say at the ecclesia? Those idiots, those bigots. That's why they fell. They didn't get enough input from the women. But listen, right? Listen as I explain why this made a lot of sense and what we do does not make as much sense as we presume. When the decisions of a political nature may involve either domestically the enforcement of laws or, as pertains to foreign affairs, the declaration of war or mustering to respond to a declaration of war by a hostile neighbor, when that's what ultimately may happen as a result of these decisions, or laws are going to be passed which have to be enforced, foreign policy decisions have to be enacted which may require an enforcement mechanism of either defending your nation from invasion from a hostile foreign power or invading a foreign power to enforce the terms of your decision, when that's always what undergirds law, whether domestically or in foreign affairs, who is going to be typically the one actually carrying out the decision? Who's it going to be? You know, let's suppose that here in the city of Greeley or in Weld County or in the state of Colorado, a new law is passed which says you must pay this or that tax on such and such a thing or you're not allowed to own such and such a thing. Take guns, for instance. If a law is passed which outlaws private gun ownership, and I'm not saying that is happening, but I'm saying there are definitely people uh, who want that to happen. They don't believe in private gun ownership. They think all of the violent crime would trickle down to nothing if we just didn't have firearms. But let's suppose, just for the sake of a thought exercise, that the law was passed which outlawed and prohibited private gun ownership. Or let's suppose that a law was passed which said, when you own this or that thing, you have to pay a certain tax. Well, now let's suppose it came to light that somebody in the community or several somebodies, lots of somebodies, aren't going to stop owning firearms privately. Either A, you just give up on enforcing the law, in which case you just wasted a whole lot of time and you caused a lot of disruption and disorder for nothing. You got people all upset and then tizzy for what? For nothing. Or you're going to have to enforce that law. Now, let's suppose you're going to enforce that law. How are you going to do it? Well, if you're going to confiscate weapons, you're going to have to send somebody who is capable of employing or credibly threatening to employ deadly force. And they may actually have to employ deadly force in order to carry out that law to confiscate these weapons. Or if somebody refuses to pay a tax, let's say it's 500 bucks, right? $500 when you own a birdbath and it's in your front yard. And you've got people who just say, I'm not going to pay that tax. I'm not going to do it. At the end of the day, to collect that tax, you have to have people who are ready and willing to bear the sword for something. They show up, they knock on the door, they say, hey, listen, you've got to pay this $500. And suppose the person on the other end of that door says, I'm not going to pay that $500. If there's no capacity to use deadly force, to bear the sword for something, then either A, you just say, okay, whatever. In which case, again, I refer you back to, you've just upset everybody for no reason. This is all just a big disruption and it's eroded 
respect for, confidence in, regard for the rule of law, or you're going to try anyways. You're going to try and enforce that law. You're going to take by force the $500 in taxes that you just said people have to pay when they own a birdbath in their front yard, just to use a silly example. So it makes sense, by the way. It makes sense that when you pass laws that have to be backed up by the threat of the use of force and the actual capacity to employ force, when you pass laws or enact policies to that end, it's going to be the men. Now, the women can say, oh, yeah, I've got a gun. I've got a gun and a badge, and you will do what I say. Okay, right? Are we there? Are we there where we are talking tough and we're going to try that? What happens when the people you're enforcing the laws on also have guns, right? But they also have larger physical bodies, greater strength, speed, endurance, mental toughness generally. They're more aggressive. You know, these are the kinds of things you have to think through. And experience would teach us that if you're going to send someone to enforce a law domestically, you want to send somebody who's as big and bigger than the person who is breaking the law. Because ideally, you're deterring noncompliance. That's what Paul's getting at in Romans 13 when he says, the governing authority does not bear the sword for nothing, which is to say you should just submit as long as what they're telling you to do is not a violation of God's law, what God commands. It will go well with you. They will reward you for doing what is good. You will find your welfare in the welfare of the city, be subject to the governing authorities, but then also bear in mind the governing authority bears the sword for something. If he bears a smaller sword and you bear a bigger sword, well, it's going to go badly for him. And there's going to have to be a lot of him, lots of him. And pretty soon they're going to get wise and they're going to get bigger swords. If you have the same size sword, but he's bigger and stronger, it's going to go badly for you. So just don't start something and there won't be something. And the same is true when it comes to countries that get into dispute. If there's not a capacity to protect your territory and defend your interests, say, for instance, your national security interests, but not just, also your trade interests, your commercial interests, your intellectual property rights. If there's not a capacity, if there's not a mechanism for enforcing, you're inviting predatory behavior. You're actually less safe when there's no deterrence. So it's 18 years of age and over men who are going to make these decisions. They're going to debate and discuss And they're going to make decisions. And yes, those decisions will be referred to other parties, other entities and institutions. But it's not for no reason that all of the male citizens, 18 years and up, are going to be this decision-making body. It's not for no reason when either A, 18 years and up, they are going to be the ones sent off to war or the ones expected to enforce these rules and these laws, these decisions. Or in the case of older men, they have been those men, right? They have been the men sent off to war, to fight in wars. They have been the men who have carried out enforcement actions or have had enforcement actions carried out around them. They've observed and they understand. They resonate with what that means. There's always going to be a need for men. So long as there's a need for government, there's always going to be a need for men to be strong enough and courageous enough and have enough integrity and enough wisdom to 
back up the laws and the policies and the decisions and the treaties and the agreements with the credible threat of force against lawbreakers, against violators. When you don't have that, then you don't have respect for the rule of law. And that's why we see exactly in all the places where defund the police has been enacted or you have mass retirement and resignation of law enforcement, you see crime go up and up and up. Why? Because the capacity to meet with deadly force, violent criminals, has gone down and it has ceased to be a deterrent. Speaking of, though, let's come back to the present. Let's leave the ancient Greeks in the rearview mirror for a little bit. Let's leave the ancient Jews in the rearview mirror for a little bit. And let's take a look at a article at DesiringGod.org from May 21st, 2016, titled Women Teaching Men, How Far is Too Far? Mary A. Cassian is the guest contributor for this article, and it's a lengthy one, so I won't read the whole thing for you, but I will read some extended portions and then provide some commentary because this does pertain, this does relate to this whole business about the Ecclesia Forum and the Book of Ruth and these women who all of a sudden are found without husbands, without sons, without men to speak for them and represent them to the community or to would-be predators, etc. Mary A. Cassian writes, Where is the line when it comes to women teaching men? May women preach on Sunday mornings, teach a Sunday school class, lead a small group, instruct a seminary course, speak at a conference, at a couple's retreat, or on the radio. May women ever teach from Scripture when men are in the audience? Should men even be reading this article? How far is too far? It's a question being asked by scores of women who want to be faithful to the Bible and want to exercise their spiritual gift of teaching in a way that honors God's pattern of male headship in the church. The discussion surrounding the boundary reminds me of another how far is too far issue. How physically affectionate should a couple be prior to marriage? Should they hold hands, kiss, kiss for five seconds, but not 15? Lip kiss, but not French kiss. How far is too far? Well, the Bible doesn't exactly specify trying to put together a list of rules about permitted behaviors would be both misleading and ridiculous, but we're not left without a rudder. The Bible does provide a clear boundary. Sexual intercourse prior to marriage crosses the line. God reveals for us in the principle of purity, gives a clear, this goes over the line boundary, and to help us figure out the rest, provides us with the gift of his indwelling spirit in the community of the saints. And thankfully, when we mess up, he stands ready to extend his lavish and costly forgiveness and grace. In the next section, titled Asking the Right Question, she continues, premarital sexual intercourse crosses the line, but let me ask you this, Can a couple physically honor the boundary and still violate the principle of purity? Yes, of course they can. So a woman who only considers the boundary and asks how far is too far is really asking the wrong question. A better question would be, do I love what God loves? Do I treasure what he treasures? Does what I do with my body indicate that I treasure purity? And how can I best honor Christ in how I physically interact with my boyfriend? By now you may be muttering, I thought she was going to talk about women teaching men in the church. I am. But I think the question of how I, as a woman with a spiritual gift of teaching, ought to honor male headship in the church has many similarities with the question of how a young woman ought to honor the principle of purity. In the former situation, as well as the latter, God hasn't given us a detailed how far is too far list. 
He's given us a broad principle, a clear this goes over the line boundary and the gift of his indwelling Holy Spirit to help us figure out the rest in the wisdom of community. Now, let me just pause right there before we read any more. I get what she's saying and I understand what she's driving at. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in the way that she's reframing this question. I think there's a lot of wisdom in this. And this really does get more to the heart of the issue. This really does. You know, I think back to when my wife now and I were not married and when we were friends. And we had a little bit of, shall we say, a frenemy status, which is to say we would go to youth group and that's kind of where we met and got to know each other most. We met in Sunday school when I was about the age of our oldest son, Josiah. We knew each other from church and from youth group and Bible study and Sunday school. And we had a lot of the same friends, but then there was this tension, right? There was a tension anytime I would be in the same place that she was in. If I would say, oh, hi, Lauren, how are you? She would get hostile. She would get irritable. And I just, for the life of me, couldn't understand why she would make these little passive aggressive swipes. And I, in turn, being provoked, would make passive aggressive swipes right back. And then at a certain point, I just thought, man, this is not cool, right? This is not good. It's awkward for everybody else. And I'll just talk with her privately and see what's going on, right? And there had been, to give a little bit of context here, there had been a time before she and I sat down and talked about this where I had kind of asked her out. Uh, Just to clarify, she had been involved in a summer camp for kids with special needs. Camp Dovetail held every year for years. I don't know if they still do it, but I would assume that they do. Camp Dovetail held at Rocky Fork State Park near Hillsboro, Ohio. She volunteered and she was an assistant group leader the year that I helped out. And she opened this invitation to everybody in our youth group, in our Bible study, at our church, all the youth. And the way that it worked was because these were kids with special needs, they needed volunteers who were also youth in many cases, but not all. Younger people, you know, teens, 20-somethings, some older adults, they needed volunteers so that each camper had a volunteer who knew what their special needs were and could be with them all throughout the week of camp to make sure that they were okay, to make sure that they made it through safely. And if they needed meds, they were getting their meds. If they needed help with eating or dressing or what have you, they would have someone to help them. And so a whole lot of our youth group and Bible study volunteered and went to meetings and got training on how to work with kids with special needs. And then came the week of camp. And I'm watching Lauren, who was just a friend at that point. I'm watching her interact with kids with special needs. And she's so kind to them. She's so patient with them. She's so loving towards them. She's so generous. She's so sweet with them. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, wow, this is such a new experience for me to be around anybody with special needs, much less a camp filled with kids with special needs. You know, we're talking kids with ADHD all the way to kids who have Down syndrome and cerebral palsy. And I 
so admired her attitude, her heart. And so coming out of that, I just found myself thinking about what a sweet young lady Lauren was. And I'll never forget. And here I make a little bit of a detour. I assure you, I will get back to this article by Mary Cassian over at Desiring God, but indulge me for a moment here. Story time. I remember going to pick up pizzas for the youth group with my friend Dennis Lunt, also homeschooled, right about my age. I think he was a grade ahead of me, but he had skipped a grade and very smart guy, a little socially awkward, if I can say so, but very smart. And he and I went together to go and pick up pizzas for our youth group. And while we're there waiting for pizzas to be brought out, he asks me, say, um, you seem to be different after Camp Dovetail. Did something happen at Camp Dovetail? And I said, oh, I don't know. I mean, it was just, it was a, it was a neat experience. I mean, it was, you know, very much challenging a lot of my presuppositions about what it means to be human and human dignity being tied to our capacity to do things that we consider to be normal and we just take for granted. And yeah, I'm just, I'm really impressed by how I saw kids with special needs being related to at this camp. And, you know, of course he was interested in a different question, which was, are you interested in Lauren? And I don't remember exactly how he asked it, but basically he asked, you know, did something happen between you and Lauren? And I was like, you know, I just, I saw the way she related to these kids and I'm just, I'm really impressed. And he's like, so do you like her? And I said, you know, I, I do find myself thinking about her quite a lot since that week of Camp Dovetail. And yeah, I, I suppose I do. I, I, I do like her. And he says, oh, yeah, me too. And that was it, right? That was it. That was the end of that conversation. And then we got the pizzas and we went back. But it was kind of a, you know, we both understood that, all right, now there's something of a competition. There's something of a rivalry now, whereas we were friends now, we're rivals and neither of us pledged any sort of, oh yeah, you know, cool. You should definitely ask her out. We both just kind of nodded and looked at the other and moved on. Well, as it would happen, the days went by. And because Lauren is very introverted and Dennis and I were awkward homeschooled kids, nerds, and a bit shy, it happened that on a certain day, not too distant in the future from that point, I sent Lauren, a instant message. Back when Yahoo Messenger was a thing, I sent her an instant message. And I said, hey, I, you know, I find myself thinking about you since Camp Dovetail. And I was wondering, would you be interested in, you know, going and getting something to eat sometime or going and seeing a movie sometime? And she said, I think you're asking me out. Is that right? And I said, yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> yeah. She says, uh, well, actually... Someone else asked me out earlier today, and I said yes. So I'm sorry. And of course, it was Dennis, right? It was Dennis. I was off by a few hours. Those who hesitate must wait. Those who hesitate are lost. And so Lauren and Dennis uh, dated for a time. And he went off to Cedarville University to study philosophy. And I, meanwhile, wasn't sure I was even going to go to college. And then Lauren and he figured out at a certain point that it wasn't going to work. Rather, she figured out at a certain point that it wasn't going to work. It just, there wasn't the, you know, chemistry, I guess you could say. She wasn't interested in him in that way. And that was around about the time that she and I, Lauren and I, sat down to talk 
about why is there this weird tension? Why is there this weird conflict between us? And in the course of talking through that and being honest and saying, hey, I don't like that there's this tension, we found that we were talking about other things. And we found that all of a sudden we were opening up about what was bothering us more broadly, more generally in life, and what some of the stresses were. And pretty soon we were going for walks and chatting because it was just easy to talk about things. And I found that a lot of my friendships with mostly guys, almost just guys at the time, were very superficial in contrast to how much I could share with and open up to Lauren and vice versa. She was telling me things that were bothering her or that she was dealing with or things she was looking forward to that she typically didn't confide in people. And in due time, Lauren and Dennis broke up, or rather, Lauren broke up with him. And he was just sure that it was my fault. I had stolen his girl. And so we don't get on anymore. We're <laughs> not friends, as you might imagine. He was brokenhearted. But actually, in all honesty, it wasn't my intention to do that. It wasn't my intention to develop feelings for Lauren. It was just, hey, we have a conflict and let's figure it out. And the whole reason I bring this up is because our talking about things and sharing our hearts with each other formed an emotional bond, which for a time turned our status as frenemies into us being very good friends. And that was it, right? She's a friend of mine and I have moved on, right? I've She went out with my friend Dennis and she turned down my invitation to date me. And so now I've just moved on, but I do value her friendship. And I meant that. I was totally genuine about that. And then in the course of weeks or months after Lauren breaking up with Dennis, she reached out to me as it would happen over Yahoo Messenger <laughs> because Yahoo Messenger was just a lot easier, a lot less uh, risky, I suppose. You don't have to deal with rejection face-to-face. You can you know, cry without anybody seeing you when you ask these kinds of things or say these kinds of things over Yahoo Messenger. But she messaged me and she said, you know, hey, um, I've been praying and I just really feel like God wants me to tell you that I keep thinking about you. And, you know, without saying it, and I, again, this is another one where I don't exactly remember how precisely the conversation went, just general themes. I understood her to be saying she was interested in me asking her out again, as I had several months prior. Only by now, I genuinely had moved on and I said, well, you know, uh, I really value our friendship. <laughs> you know, that, that was what it was. That's what I meant and that's what I said. And of course, she was very upset about that, but hit it very well. And she was very confused because she thought, wow, okay, I, I thought he was interested in me and I don't know what happened. And I thought the Lord had put it on my heart to tell him that I keep thinking about him, but he's kind of rebuffed me. And meanwhile, from my vantage point, I was thinking, wow, this is a really great friendship and I don't want anything to jeopardize it. But then, of course, time went on and people kept asking us, by the way, are you two dating? Are you two a, an item? Because we would go for walks around the neighborhood, walks up and down the sidewalk and around the block before Bible study on Wednesday nights. And people would ask, are you two dating? No, 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 no. Why would you ask that? No, we just like to go on long walks together the two of us talking about our feelings. 
<laughs> no, just we're just friends who do that. And then after a while, after so many questions of that kind, I thought, well, wait a second, you know, maybe, maybe I, I should ask God, right? Maybe I need wisdom here, and I should pray and ask God for wisdom and believe that He'll give me wisdom. And the rest is history, because even though there's a lot more I could give you in the way of detail, you know how it turned out. She's my wife, and come November. November 25th, it will have been 17 years since we got married, and we are expecting our ninth child, our eighth son, our ninth child, uh, November 4th. And the reason I tell you all this, the reason I bring this all up into the topic of the question of whether women should teach men is there are a couple of hazards. There are a few hazards that are present, which I don't often hear or at all hear being dealt with. I would say that they are the elephant in the room, and it's not for no reason that the author here at Desiring God, Mary A. Cassian, asks the question that she does about premarital or extramarital relations so as to reframe our question about how far is too far with women teaching men or teaching in the church. It's very easy if there is conflict, for instance. Let's say you put a woman into a position of teaching and having authority over men, it's very easy if there is conflict to have working through that conflict and resolving that conflict turn into a strong emotional attachment, which then, before you know it, has turned into romantic feelings. It's too easy for that to happen. And that's if things are going poorly initially. And I say this from experience that Lauren and I had to work through some conflict because we were not getting along very well. But the trouble was, <laughs> but not really the trouble, it was actually a really great thing, and I'm very happy for it. I'm very thankful to God for it. The result was that we did come to develop very strong feelings for one another. And before we knew it, not only had we worked through the conflict and developed a budding friendship, but now a lot of people were noticing and observing and saying, are you two a thing? Are you two an item? Are you dating? And pretty soon, as a matter of fact, as I took a long, hard look at our situation, I had to admit that the biggest reason we weren't or why I was answering no is because I cared a lot about our relationship and our friendship in a way that I didn't care about any of my other relationships, my other friendships. It was qualitatively a different kind of dynamic, and it's, it's supposed to be, right? It should be. If you put a woman into a position of having authority over men, teaching men, and there is a conflict, if they work through that conflict very, very well, what the result might be is romantic attachment, romantic feelings, which are very difficult to just put back into a platonic state. If things go well, though, right? If, if you don't have conflict, what you may find, if you normalize this, if you rationalize this, what you may find is that you have a similar kind of a dynamic to what I encountered with my now wife, Lauren, at Camp Dovetail where here are these kids with special needs and she's doing such a wonderful job being an assistant group leader and taking care of these kids. And I'm seeing that she's taking care of these kids. And I just so admire her. And that admiration also contributes to the development of romantic attachment, romantic feelings, attraction, intimacy. And again, that can be a very difficult thing to just put out of your mind. And forget about. Coming back to 
the article from Mary A. Cassian at Desiring God. She continues, God wants us to honor his divine design by honoring the principle of male headship in our homes and church families. The church is God's family and household, 1 Timothy 3.15, Hebrews 3.6, Galatians 6.10. The family part is key. The Bible teaches that in the nuclear family unit, as well as in our corporate church families, the father or multiple fathers in the case of the church have the responsibility to lovingly lead and humbly govern the family unit. This pattern is repeated on multiple levels. A husband is the head of his home. Elders are heads of their local churches. Christ is head over the universal church, and God the Father is the head of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.3, 1 Timothy 3.4-5, Hebrews 3.6. God wants us to value and honor this pattern and cherish it as he does. The biblical term for a church leader is elder or overseer. Churches today often call their leaders pastor. Some churches call every person on paid staff a pastor, even if that person is a female and not an elder, to avoid confusion over all the conflicting terminology. And to be clear about what I mean, I will call the men who occupy the biblical office of elder slash overseer and who govern and lead the church family, the church fathers. God gives us a clear boundary for how we ought to honor the principle of male headship in the church. We honor it by letting the church fathers govern and teach the church family. Scripture indicates that women are to remain quiet when the church fathers are providing this type of authoritative family instruction. Quote, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, 1 Timothy 2.12. That's the boundary we must observe if we want to honor the principle of male headship. Now, let me just pause right here and let me ruffle a few feathers, but it's for a good cause. Let me step on some toes, but in the end, I hope you'll see that maybe your toes should be carefully placed. (laughs) More carefully than our culture has been acclimating and conditioning us and conforming us to think. When Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. The context of the passage is not limited to pastoral authority, pastoral teaching. It's not. I mean, think with me for a moment about whether you have known any, I have known plenty, young ladies who were very interested in this or that guy, but he's not a Christian, right? That's what I would hear often when I was in high school from some of my friends who were young ladies. I'm interested in this guy, but he's not a Christian. What should I do? And I heard a few of them say, well, maybe I can help him to become a Christian, right? (laughs) Maybe I can share Jesus with him and then he'll be a Christian and then problem solved, right? Well, yes, but also no, right? So what ends up happening all too easily is she's trying to disciple him. She's trying to share the gospel with him. And she's not objective. She's already attracted to him. And the more time she spends around him, the more she talks with him, the deeper that bond grows or that attraction grows stronger. And before she knows it, they're dating anyways. And before she knows it, his not being a Christian has turned into them being very much involved. We'll put it that way. And so now the question is, is she going to get married to this young man who's not a Christian? And he's still not a Christian. And maybe at some point he'll come to church with her every now and then. Maybe at some point he'll become a Christian. We should hope for that. We should pray for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what started out as her teaching him the scriptures, and he wasn't a Christian, very quickly turned into, now they're an item. Very similar to how Lauren and I talking with each other and spending time talking with each other turned into romantic attachment. 
When Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach her to have authority over a man, I believe it's for very similar reasons, not limited to what I just shared, but very similar reasons to what I just shared. One, women are very different. Their psychology is very different. Their emotional range and how they can switch from one motion to the next, it's very different than what is typical to men. And no, that's not all just social conditioning. There's a lot neurologically and biologically. There's a lot at the level of the hormones, which God placed in us disproportionately based on whether we're male or female. There's a lot of that that affects how we express our emotions, our feelings, our thoughts, how we communicate our ideas. And think with me for a moment about a few scenarios wherein a woman is teaching or having authority. Let's suppose she's not doing a excellent job, right? Men can mishandle the word of truth. Women can mishandle the word of truth. Let's suppose she's mishandling the word of truth and what she said needs to be corrected. Women respond differently to being corrected by men than men respond to being corrected by men. This is a fact, right? It's just an absolute law of the universe. Women respond differently to that. And if they're right though, right? If they're right and a man who is present doesn't like that, a woman is going to respond differently when challenged in her teaching and authority then a man who's in that position will respond. She may give up on something that is true when she shouldn't, or she may stick to something that is not true when she shouldn't. And it'll be very different because this is a man who is correcting her. And if the instinct, friends, if the instinct that God put in us by virtue of men being different than women at a cellular level, at a neurological level, in large part due to the effect of hormones on our brain chemistry, on our autonomic responses. If a woman is corrected by a man, either A, she's going to try and overcompensate for resisting that inclination to be submissive or to be subject, and then she's going to get very aggressive or unpleasant or passive-aggressive or frosty, because she overcompensated, or she may give in to that inclination and she might be excessively agreeable and she shouldn't have been. And what's the tendency of men? If a man, and I can speak from experience being on both sides of this, if a man with authority is challenged or disagreed with or questioned by another man, typically either A, if he has good character and he's patient, he's going to say, That's a good point. And that's how he can kind of prove himself to be the bigger man, right? That's how he maintains the respect of all involved, except sometimes, not always, the one who's correcting or challenging him. That happens. But he rises above it and he demonstrates that he's not all that ruffled. He doesn't feel threatened at all, which can go a long ways to diffuse the situation. But if he doesn't do that, and if this person is very adamant in what they're pushing is not correct. They're trying to get him to not be correct anymore. A man's response is typically going to be more the inclination to fight. And if that is under control, if that's disciplined, and if the position he's taking is true and good and right, and somebody's trying to get him off course, it's good that he would fight after a fashion. He would argue the case, he would stand his ground, and he would insist. No. Say, for instance, in the example of the New Testament false teacher, where 
it's a command. It's not an option. It's not like, oh, you could, right? You can correct false teaching and rebuke false teachers. You can do that. No, no, do it, right? Correct false teaching, rebuke false teachers, do so publicly as publicly as their teaching is public. Do it. That's part of what it means that you would be a shepherd is you're protecting the sheep from wolves, in particular, the wolves in sheep's clothing. That requires a capacity even just on an emotional level, on a intellectual level, and yes, on a physiological level, a capacity to maintain forcefulness with opposition and not blow the situation up and also not shrink, tuck tail and run. I think that's also part of why this is the pattern. This is why God says that the man shall be the head over his wife. I think this is why Paul says that a woman is to remain quiet rather than teaching or having authority over a man in the church. Now, here's another piece, right? Have you ever noticed in neighborhoods, in communities, in homes even, where there is no father, there are no father figures, have you ever noticed and observed what happens to the young men? What happens to the boys? What happens to the young men? Well, at a certain point, they grow up. And what they tend to do, unfortunately, is get themselves into all manner of trouble. One kind of trouble that they might get into is that they become effeminate, right? They submit themselves to the pattern of the female authorities in their lives. And as they get older, they don't depart from it. And they always have to be non-threatening to all the women, which is to say that they adopt rather feminine ways of relating. Unfortunately, this can result in out-and-out effeminacy, homosexuality, and being transgendered. When it goes the other direction, what happens with young men is that as they grow older, they want to gravitate towards other young men because they're looking for someone to provide an example of what it means to be a man, and so they start looking to their peers to show them what it means to be a man, to be manly. As they look to their peers, when they don't have moral instruction and they don't have someone older and more mature with wisdom and goodness and strength to temper them and to correct them and to teach them and to model these things for them, what they start to do is they start to get into trouble of the violent kind, of the criminal kind. Stuff starts getting broken left and right. Things start disappearing that are valuable. People start getting very badly hurt and ever more and more and more hurt the less correction there is. Ultimately, you, you will find, you, you will find this, ultimately you'll find murders and rapes go up in those places, in those communities. And it all can trace back to, was there a father in the homes of these families teaching that son, these sons, these young men how to be a decent man? A mother at a certain point needs to hand over the primary instruction, the moral instruction of young men to the father. But if the father's not there, or if he's been badgered into, pruned into obsolescence and irrelevance, then you're right back where you started with either roving gangs of violent thugs and criminals on the one hand, or effeminacy. The good little boy who only has women as role models, as the aspirational model in his life, thinks that he's growing up to try and be like those women he admires, which is to say, ultimately, give it enough time, he wants to grow up to be a woman. 
And I think that's a large part of what is driving this transgender moment right now, is that you have young men surrounded by women and seeing that the women have the power, the women have the authority, the women are doing all of the teaching. And so what do they take away from that? If they want power, authority, and the capacity to make claims, be assertive, they're going to have to be a woman. Then they'll be affirmed. So we think that this is just in the last couple of years, this out of nowhere phenomena. No, no. It's a social contagion in part because you have people trying to normalize the effects and the consequences of fatherlessness. And what's upstream of it is the breakdown of male headship in the home, male headship in the church, male headship in the community to provide an aspirational model to young men. And meanwhile, the kinds of things you'll hear from women in the church who have embraced thoroughly the tenets of feminism, what you'll hear is that if we tell them, oh, you have the spiritual gift of teaching, apply it to the children, that's demeaning. Okay, this is going to be one of those games. Spot the differences, right? You've seen those in the old Highlights for Kids magazines. Spot the differences. Yeah, spot the differences between what you just said and how you're relating and what your attitude is and feminism. I'll wait because that's feminism. What you're communicating is just feminism right now. It's not common sense. It's feminism. It's not biblical. It's feminism. Or to give another example, if you have older women in the church who say, I feel like I have so much wisdom to share. It's like, that should be your first warning sign that, hey, wait a second. (laughs) If we're telling you, maybe this is not so wise, maybe you should go back to the drawing board. Do you have so much wisdom to share? If you're acting this way, if you're relating this way, if you're kicking against the goad with regards to the biblical pattern, do you have so much wisdom? Do we want you teaching the Bible? You're not off to a great start in rightly handling the word of truth here, lady. But they'll say, right? They'll say these kinds of things. Oh, I have this spiritual gift of teaching and you're going to be quenching the spirit if you tell me that I'm not to apply that with the men in mixed groups. And I say, you should test the spirits to see whether that is actually from God because last I checked, the scriptures are breathed out by God and not every spirit is from God and God is not going to contradict himself. But they'll say, oh, it would be demeaning and belittling for these older women to teach the younger women. And I say, aren't you kind of insulting yourself? I mean, if you think I'm denigrating women, aren't you the one who's denigrating women? I feel like I'm saying the younger women need to be trained in righteousness. They need to be discipled. And oh, by the way, it's better if you have older women who can disciple the younger women, it's better and it's safer for the men involved as well. And this is true. The closer to marriageable age and the prime of life a young lady is, this is all the more true because all of those same things that I was just talking about with regards to my wife, Lauren, those are in effect and we ignore them, we downplay them, we pretend that they're not a factor to our peril. We're being foolish and naive and simple and yes, even possibly disobedient to say, oh no, that's not even a factor. Why does Paul say, Because there's so much sexual immorality in the world, every man should have his own wife and every woman should have her own husband because there's a lot of temptation out there and there's a lot that's trying to normalize just doing whatever feels good and whatever pops into your mind. And if we're already struggling with conformity to feminist ideas that are out there circulating in society, what makes you think we're not going to struggle as much or more if we refuse to confront this threat 
This challenge, this opportunity also, by the way, depending on how you look at it, what makes you think we're going to be so staunch when it comes to a temptation that might form for there to be an inappropriate relationship between a man who's discipling a younger woman? What will happen is what consistently happens where romantic attachment, romantic feelings form, take hold, and now it's going to be awkward and they're going to have to work through that and go their separate ways or they're going to succumb. And then we're going to say, oh man, wow, how did this happen? Oh, it's so sad. Yeah, you know what? You know what's so sad is when this consistently happens again and again and again and we don't do anything (laughs) to figure out why it's happening or whether perhaps we missed a step in the way we order our churches, in the way we order our Christian lives, in the way we order our relationships to our fellow saints in the world. Say it's all so sad as much as you like, but if you don't do anything about it, then maybe you're not so sad, you just want to look like you're sad. Do you really care? Do we really care? We should. We should care. Coming back to the conclusion, though, and I've got to skip down quite a lot for the sake of time because it is a Sunday morning and... I need to go get ready for church and take my family to church this morning. Mary Cassian writes, In the final analysis, I can't give you a cut and dried list of what is and isn't permissible. It would be like trying to come up with a strict one-size-fits-all permissible physical affection list for dating couples. It's not advisable or really even possible. All I can say is that your decision depends on the situation. God gives us the principle of male headship, a clear This goes over the line boundary and the gift of his indwelling Holy Spirit in faithful community to help us figure out the rest. And when we mess up, he extends grace upon grace. An externally focused rule-based approach to women teaching co-ed audiences in the church neither reflects nor honors the beauty of God's design. God wants us to have a grace-soaked, joyous spirit that delights in honoring headship as a beautiful aspect of his good and wise plan, one that respects and engages men and women as joint heirs and co-workers who wholeheartedly exercise their gifts together in the service of each other and the advance of the gospel, God is far more concerned that we have the right heart and spirit than that we fall in line with man-made flashpoints. And then there's grace. Because of grace, I need to recognize that my Christian brothers and sisters may be in a different stage in their understanding of the issue. I need to humbly acknowledge that I don't have a corner on the market of truth. I need to extend grace when they draw lines of application more tightly or loosely than I would. Having said that, we cannot think for a moment that this instruction is irrelevant, that we can write it off as an ancient cultural quirk, and How we apply it is totally optional, that every interpretation and application is equally valid or that churches should just do what they please. To be sure, we probably won't all get it right all the time, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't always do our best to get it right. Now, that's the end. That's the conclusion of her piece from 2016. Here's what I will say. Here's what I will say. If the point is that we have men only in positions of pastoral authority, preaching the sermons on a Sunday morning, remember that part of the context of the New Testament, say in Acts, for instance, is that the believers, the saints, were gathering daily in one another's homes. So if you think to yourself that this is confined to the church, finger quotes, air quotes, the church in your way of thinking about the church as a building in all too many cases. That's the way we think is we think the church and we think the church building, but it doesn't apply in other settings where the church is going to be held. Say, for instance, a church that Lauren and I were very involved in years ago that met in a community college. They just rented it out on Sundays for their services. 
it's still the church if you're meeting in Solomon's portico or a community college or an old furniture store. It's still the church because two or three are gathered together in his name for the purpose of teaching, exhortation, worship, discipleship, reading the scriptures. So when Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, rather she is to keep silent, understand, one, that our temptation is very common to conform to the pattern of this world and to be embarrassed. And that's the right word for the way a lot of us feel about what Paul writes to Timothy. We're embarrassed. Oh, Paul, why did you have to say that? Wow, don't you realize how offensive that is? Wait, 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 wait. Maybe we have this backwards. If the heart of the issue is God has a good design, a good plan, a wonderful plan for our homes and yes, our churches, and that both alike are like our individual lives to be marked by good works and purity and honor and love for God above all things and love for one another as we love ourselves. When we recognize that, we understand that the point is not to oppress women. I think that's the reason why so many of us are embarrassed about Paul having said this is because we see it as oppressive and repressive and stunting some kind of a natural progression. But then where are those ideas and attitudes coming from? Are they coming from scripture? We're reading them out of the scriptures and then applying them to our context and saying, hey, we made a wrong turn somewhere. Or are they coming from the spirit of this age? Are they coming from a temptation to be conformed to the pattern of this world? Are they coming from selfish ambition and vain conceit? Because when Paul says in another place, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, that's not just going to apply to the men. It's also going to apply to the women. And when women operate from selfish ambition and vain conceit, it looks different, but maybe not so different. And maybe sometimes the reason this is so controversial is because women are filled not so much with wisdom and godliness that they want to share with everybody, but they're filled with selfish ambition and vain conceit. And then the men are terrified of upsetting the women who are present. And so they don't say, first and foremost, I want to love God and rejoice with the truth and be faithful to the word of God. But they say, ooh, wow. Hmm, I don't know. I don't know. Let's move on. (laughs) Let's talk about the gospel. Well, wait a second. Talking about the gospel is not instead of figuring out how to apply what Paul said or what. What would we be implying if we said, oh, no, let's focus on the gospel? That would imply that maybe Paul was making a mistake here, and this actually shouldn't be in the scriptures, as if all scripture is not breathed out by God and profitable, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. Is that the road we want to go down? What are we going to be left with of Paul's epistles if we say we're going to focus on the gospel and not apply what Paul says here? If our big question is how far is too far, maybe a better question would be how faithfully can we honor what Paul writes instead of how much can we get away with, like some young couple who just are head over heels about each other. Maybe what we should be saying is, you know what? That's great. You know, young people, that's great that you want to hold hands and stare into one another's eyes and have private conversations about what's going on deep within your heart. You want to get to know each other. You just love being around the other person. All of that is wonderful that you want to show physical affection, that you're attracted to this young lady 
men, this young guy, gals. Oh, that's fantastic. It's all great. And <laughs> for this reason, every man should have his own wife and every woman should have her own husband. You know, it floors me. It floors me that in instance after instance where I see this being pushed back on or forgotten or ignored or neglected in the church in America today, what you'll hear is, oh, so-and-so, he's just you know a bit quieter, but his wife, she's very outgoing. That's what we'll say. We'll say she's very outgoing. She's very extroverted and she speaks her mind. Well, yes, but maybe some of that is her actually forgetting herself in relation to her husband. Maybe that's also selfish ambition and vain conceit within the context of their marriage. Not that she would have wisdom. That's great. Proverbs 31 describes the excellent wife as having a husband whose heart trusts in her. That's great. But also too, in the context of wielding authority or teaching, what's being implied is that she has more wisdom than her husband, or she would be more trustworthy as an authority than her husband. But if that ends up being the case in the church, how does that work out when they go home? Hmm? And I, Honestly, how does that work out when it comes to them trying to figure things out around the kitchen table? She lays aside all of her inclination to teach co-ed groups, and she doesn't try to lecture her husband and teach her husband how it's going to be and tell him what they're going to be doing. She lays aside all the authority that she is able to exercise in the context of the church when she's speaking to her husband. She doesn't try to assert authority over her husband. No, 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 no. Instead, what happens is there's a lot of confusion. And God is not a God of confusion and chaos. He's a God of peace. What brings peace into a contentious marriage situation or a contentious home life or a contentious church situation? What brings peace is all of us being under God's authority. And if God has given us the scriptures and all scriptures breathed out by God, not delivered because of the imaginations and whims of men, but by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it's profitable for all scripture to be applied to the end of the man of God being complete, equipped for every good work. And if exhortation and correction and rebuke is a part of that, then you tell me how equal respect, equal dignity for women somehow excludes them from being corrected and rebuked on this point. We say, oh yeah, men and women, totally equal in the eyes of God, totally equal in dignity. And I say, great. Now, Show me what that looks like in who we will and won't correct, who we will and won't contradict, who we will and won't rebuke when they are in error, when they are engaging in selfish ways from a place of vanity and ambition, selfish ambition. There's a lot of this that really would be better served if we went back to, for instance, the book of Ruth. And you look at the way that Ruth relates. If we're talking Younger women in the church, for instance, for example, and they're trying to figure out what to do. Well, here's an idea, and let me just hold up a few examples, and then I got to run. Younger women in the church could learn a thing or two from Ruth. If they're unmarried, Ruth is unmarried at the end of chapter one, her husband's passed on, and she pledges herself to help and to stay with and to keep company with her mother in law, Naomi. She is taking care of this older woman, and helping her. Younger women 
who have wisdom, who are capable, who are competent, who are strong, who are resourceful, they could absolutely roll up their sleeves and help older women in their church and in the process. What is liable to happen is actually exactly what happens in Ruth's story. Again, spoiler alert, sorry. The younger woman, Ruth, is still young enough to get remarried. And Paul says in the New Testament, that's what younger widows should do. They should get remarried. So they don't get into trouble. They don't become busy bodies. But the younger woman here, when she pledges herself to taking care of this true widow, this older woman whose husband has passed away, at the end of the story, she finds she has a very good, honorable man who recognizes her as a good, honorable woman, a noble woman with good character. And he marries her. And they, let's just say, have some pretty noteworthy, pretty reputable descendants, the two of them. David, for instance, for example, descends from Ruth and Boaz, the man after God's own heart. Jesus descends from Ruth and Boaz, like not to be discounted. But also the flip side here is, as Ruth is taking care of Naomi, what is Naomi doing? She is playing matchmaker. She is giving good advice, good counsel, good teaching after a fashion to Ruth. And at the end of the story, you have Naomi having found purpose and belonging again, not just having been provided for and taken care of, but also you have Naomi having helped to secure the happiness of her daughter-in-law who was so loyal to her in a marriage to Boaz, who is a good, honorable man. He's a noble of character, competent, assertive man of means who provides and protects and loves Ruth. The women who are older in the context of the church who have wisdom should be investing in the younger women like Naomi invests in Ruth. The younger women in the church who don't have husbands, they don't have a husband and children to take care of and love and serve, they should be helping older women in the church like Ruth helps Naomi and both alike. Both Ruth and Naomi are much the better for it and so is everybody else. So are we for reading their story and seeing that example because it is a fantastic example, Seth. And oh, by the way, in case it's not obvious, what comes from the relationship of Boaz and Ruth initially just being one of, hey, I exercise authority over the fields where you are gleaning and gathering, and I tell the men to not harass you, to not bother you, to not give you any trouble. What comes of his providing and protecting is romantic attachment. Only in this case, it's okay because she's unattached, she's unmarried. But in all the above, in this case, in the context of Ruth, you have orderliness, you have honor, you have decency, you have wisdom, you have love. This is a great, great story. I'm looking forward to going through the book of Ruth for the next couple of weeks. After, and this is where I'm going to have to leave you for a period of several days, after an intermission. So let me explain. Oh, wait, there's too much. Let me sum up. I'm going up to Wyoming for work. I go up this afternoon and I'll be gone. I don't know exactly how many days, but probably three or four days. So you won't be getting new episodes of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show over the next several days. In the meantime, 
I would encourage you go back and look at some previous episodes that I've published. There are, oh, I don't know, 714 (laughs) to pick from, to choose from. If there are some you haven't listened to, go check them out. Go listen to them. Also, do me a favor, hit subscribe, give this podcast a good rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share it. Share this podcast, The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, with somebody who likes to think deeply and likes to explore topics after a fashion that might be an encouragement to them. It might provoke some thoughts. It might encourage them to do some more studying and some more reading, especially of God's Word, but then also other books as well. I've done lots of book reviews on lots of topics. Encourage people you know to listen to this podcast if you believe it would be a benefit to them. And you, yourself, listen to this podcast if you believe it would be a benefit to you. Hit subscribe and give me a good rating if you think I deserve it. And if you don't believe it would be a benefit to you and other people, well then, go with God. Adios. (laughs) But hopefully you do, right? Hopefully you do. And hopefully this has been an encouragement. And yes, sure, stepping on some toes, ruffling some feathers, but not to try and make you uncomfortable. Rather, I want us to be more honorable and more secure. And I want us to have a good future and a good result. I think we will do that along the lines of how I'm interpreting, how I'm reading, not just the book of Ruth, but also what Paul writes in the New Testament about how men and women relate to each other and how both alike relate to the church. And more importantly, but all at the same time, one and the same, how we relate to Christ is going to inform how we relate to the church, his bride, his people, how we relate to God, expresses itself in how we relate to each other. But you got to get it in that order. First and foremost, we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power to save for all who believe. So that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.